Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a non-profit, non-partisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. It's my pleasure this evening to introduce a true voice for American interests across the globe. We're very pleased to welcome Ambassador Chris Hill to McKinney. Uh, McKinney, and I said this to him earlier, is Time Magazine's number one best place to live in the United States between cities of 50 and, and 300,000. So we're number one for this year. Who will be next? <laughs> yeah. Ambassador Hill is a strong advocate for international engagement and integration and has truly made his mark on the diplomatic community as one of the most distinguished voices in the international affairs. True. His wife says that's true. Uh, and that is true. And she's traveled with him most spots around the world, so she's also witnessed this. A graduate of Bowdoin College with a BA in economics and later of the Naval War College with his master's degree, Ambassador Hill started his international career as a volunteer in the Peace Corps. He was in Cameroon, West Africa, helping them set up credit unions. Correct? Yeah, that's, that was his start. Of course, of course, he blossomed from there. He started his diplomatic career with tours in Belgrade, Warsaw, Seoul, Tirana, and before taking up the role as ambassador to Macedonia between 1996 and 1999. In 1998 and 99, based on his expertise in European affairs, as well as fluency in Polish, Serbo-Croatian, and Macedonian, which you still speak, I assume? Yes, he does. Yes. <laughs> he was assigned as special envoy to, the coast, to Kosovo, where his critical role in negotiating peace during the Kosovo crisis earned him the Robert S. Frazier Award for Peace Negotiation. Now, he had earlier received an award from the State Department's Distinguished Service Award for the contributions to the peace in Kosovo. Uh, ambassador Hill served as U.S. Ambassador to Poland from 2000 to 2004 and was Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs from 2005 to 2009. During this time, in his post, he served as the head of the U.S. delegation to the six-party talks in North, the North Korean nuclear issue. He led that effort. In April of 2009, Ambassador Hill became ambassador to Iraq and served there until he left the Foreign Service in August of 2010. Following his, his diplomatic career, he is now focusing on bringing new leaders along, international leaders. He is current, currently serves as a dean of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. And you should be happy to be here. There in snow right now. <laughs> of course, we had our snow. Uh, tonight, he will discuss his experiences as articulated in his new memoir, Outpost, Life on the Frontiers of American Diplomacy. Please join me in a warm welcome to Ambassador Chris Hill.
Thank you very much, Dan, for that very uh, kind introduction. And it is it's a great pleasure to be here at the Romeo Club. I, I was a little confused when I saw it on my, uh, you know, it wasn't quite clear what that was going to be, but now I understand. Um, it's also great to be here in McKinney, uh, Texas for the, for the first time. Uh, I must say, if you um, play a little golf, which I do try to do, I, I recommend rather than play here in McKinney, you go to Denver because it's 5,280 feet high there, and any drive will go about 40 yards uh, <laughs> further. So it does get, get, give you a kind of false sense when you come back to earth and try to uh, try to play golf. But uh, let me just say it's a, it's a great pleasure to be here, and uh, all the uh, comments that uh, Jim made about uh, why it's important for Americans to be um, engaged in this world. It is a very complicated place we live in, and um, it behooves us as Americans to understand it as well as we can. And um, I had the, uh, the privilege, really, of working for six presidents. I worked for 11 um, secretaries of state. Some I preferred more than others, um, hard to say. Um, I will tell you, I never joined a, a political party uh, through all that because I felt it was important when I represent the United States. I do have personal political views, but I felt it was important when I represented the United States that no one could quite figure it out. They all knew that I was a New England Patriots fan. I'm sorry about that, but it's that's something that just got tattooed on my forehead early on in life. And I stuck with them through many, many losing seasons. And, uh, well, let's put it this way. I look forward to when they meet the Dallas Cowboys. And, uh, uh, let me, uh, I thought I might talk a little about the world, but let me start with a little um, uh, anecdote uh, from my, you know, I served in Poland a couple of times, a country I absolutely love. I mean, they are really uh, one of our great allies in this world. And, but they've had to come a long way. They used to have a pretty miserable communist system, and it was nothing they ever wanted. It was something that was imposed on them after World War II, imposed on them through a brutal kind of division of, uh, of uh, Europe that took place in, in 45. And so they suffered under one terrible communist leader after another. And one of the worst, not that he was brutal, but he just wasn't very smart, and he was known for giving very long speeches and uh, having not very successful um, metaphors. His name was Władysław Gomułka, and one day he stood up in front of an enormous crowd in southern Poland in the town of Kraków, and he said to this crowd, just a few years ago, comrades, our nation stood on the very edge of a deep abyss, and I'm here to tell you today we have taken an important step forward. <laughs> So, when, when you think when you think of some of the problems that our country is going through today, that our the world is going through today, I think it is important not to take that important step forward, but to step back, try to understand what these circumstances are. And then understand one thing, which is no one's going to be indifferent about what we think about things. We may be indifferent, no one's indifferent about us. And so it behooves us to understand these things, because when we speak, people will listen. 
And so I think um, as I look around the world and uh, see some of these great allies we have, and none better, none better in the world than uh, the Republic of Korea, represented today here by, uh, by Consul Lee, um, it is important to stand by those allies and work with them and understand that not every problem can be solved by us, but we cannot really um, shrink back. We need to have a policy. We need to be engaged on these issues. And one thing I, I try to do in this in this book, um, by the way, I never thought I could write a book, and I, you know, I'm sure a lot of you have the same view. I could never write a book, but I mean, in the State Department, I never wrote more than two pages, and even then, no one would ever read the last half of the second page. <laughs> so, when I got on to page three, I was in terra incognito, and. Um, and then 397 pages later, I had actually finished this, uh, finished this book. So for any of you who have thought you couldn't write a book, think again, because there's a, probably a book in a lot of you. And it's simply a question, first of all, of having a very loving wife who uh, really works with you on these things, make sure you, know, you have your cookies and uh, hot chocolate at 7 in the morning. It was six in the morning, something. It was five in the morning. What am I saying? It was four forty-five. Uh, wake up, and then five to uh, to seven. And so, I, as I went through uh, through this this book and thinking of all these situations that, for one reason or another, I had gotten involved in, and realizing that you know some of them went okay. I mean, frankly, if you go back, if you go back to Kosovo, in fact, Julie and I had the opportunity to go there last year, and you see how peaceful it is, and how everyone's busy building new new structures, and they're all, they're all arguing about their politics, uh, uh, which is okay, it's fine, sometimes it gets a little out of hand, but uh, it's, it's okay, and then you realize it's kind of become a normal place, and you go back to Bosnia, and you see the same. And then, of course, there's some places that uh, it's not so easy to, to work out. Uh, you know, I worked very hard on the North Koreans. Now, those are people only a mother can love. I mean, I've never seen such, uh, such uh, people in my life. But you have to remember why President Bush wanted to deal with this. He understood that if we didn't engage in it, no one else was going to engage. But he also understood something that I thought was very important, which was... Uh, You've got to, first of all, choose some of your battles and figure out where you are. And at the time, we were in, in, involved with a very painful doubleheader, really, going on in Afghanistan and Iraq. And we needed to kind of calm down the situation with the North Koreans. And President Bush understood another thing, which was, as we in the first Bush administration had said, we won't deal with that issue, they're terrible people, which they are, I can, I can attest to that. But what happened when we would sort of denounce any negotiations with the North Koreans was that um, we saw in polling data that half of the people in South Korea, 45, 50%, were blaming the United States for North Korea's nuclear ambitions. So how can you put yourself into a situation where you've turned some of the worst people in the world into victims of uh, how you were treating them? So. We needed to fix that problem, and President Bush understood it very well that we needed to engage and show our true allies and the true future of the Korean Peninsula, which is the Republic of Korea, South Korea. We needed to show them that we were going to be engaged and we were going to work with them. And uh, the time for uh, 
telling the South Koreans, well, you just wait here, we'll take the airplane ride up to North Korea, and we'll come back, and we'll tell you what went on. Those times are over. We needed to work with other countries. And I think for many people who look at the, uh, uh, the Bush administration, they'd be kind of, they'd find that that's a little ironic that he was so concerned about trying to get other countries to work with us. It may be ironic, but it was very true that uh, he understood, and I firmly believe, that we needed to work with others to try to address problems. In South Korea today, you rarely hear from anybody the idea that the U.S., by our truculence and yelling at people, had caused the North Korean nuclear ambitions. On the contrary, people understood where the blame resides. So I think that was a very good lesson of something that we didn't necessarily solve it, I mean, we got um, the North Koreans to uh, shut down, and I go through this in, in, in my book, so you don't have to hear it from me tonight, but uh, if you buy the book or even take it out of the library, you can read about it. Uh, but uh, what, we, what we showed was that we were able to get the North Koreans to shut down their nuclear plant. We got them to disable it, and the idea at the time was to say, even through a downturn in relationships, we should be in relationships, we should be able to kind of create a situation where it would take them many years, maybe five, maybe more, to um, get the reactor going again. And during that time, perhaps we could uh, overcome whatever uh, uh, problem had ensued. So we got them to shut it down. We, um, we uh, disabled some of the equipment. And then most famously, we took the uh, sort of that giant cool, uh, the cooling tower and we had it blown up on CNN to show the world that in fact something had changed. This was all a function of diplomacy. This was all, you know, getting a few um, foreign service officers. And by the way, it is a team sport. It is a team sport. No, you know, when you hear, hear about Diplomat X running around, Diplomat X is not running around. Diplomat has a lot of other diplomats running around with him or her. And so we worked together to try to to work with the South Koreans, we work with the Chinese, and that is a country that we truly need to have to figure out, figure out a lot better. You know, for those of you who uh, think that somehow our future is in somehow lasting enmity with China, I suggest you fly to Beijing, take a taxi about 45 minutes north, you'll encounter something called the Great Wall of China, and ask yourself whether we really want to get into a fight with the people who made a thing like this. And uh, the answer is we do not. We need to kind of develop some patterns of cooperation with the Chinese. So we did that with, uh, with North Korea. We did that... Uh, uh, we got the Russians involved in it. Again, very difficult people. Sometimes the Russians will say no or say yet, just to be a pain in the neck. Even when it's in their interest to work with you, by any stretch of the imagination, it's in their interest to work with us, and yet they'll say yet, just for the heck of it. So uh, they are truly a difficult people uh, to deal with. So as I kind of fast forward to, well, after North Korea, I should say, I thought I had kind of had enough. I'd been working on Kosovo, working in Bosnia. Um, you know, I, I lost several colleagues in Bosnia, and I, ex I explain that in the book. I mean, it's, uh, I think anyone who's been in a wartime situation in the military or been in diplomatic situations uh, and you've lost colleagues, it's just a shocking thing where one day they're there and one day they're not. And so... Um, Difficult as those times were, and then we moved on to North Korea, and then finally, I thought I was going to leave the Foreign Service. Uh, I 
gotten to the point where I really wanted to retire. I think it's always uh, a, a good idea that to uh, leave before people are expecting you to leave. It's always better to have people say, what, you're leaving, as opposed to, what, you're still here? So, uh, yeah. so I was all set to leave, and then, um, then I got a call from Secretary Clinton's office. This was just a couple of days after the inaugural of uh, President Obama. So she wanted me to come up at uh, 5 o'clock at night and up to her office, and so I thought she wanted another memo on North Korea. She was of the view that somehow we, we could rekindle the negotiations, which had essentially um, uh, stopped in uh, the fall of 2008. Her theory was that North Korea was uh, waiting and wanting to deal with the, Obama, the incoming Obama administration rather than the outgoing uh, uh, Bush administration. Why that was the case, I mean, I could understand why she thought of that. Certainly, we knew that uh, the North Koreans had turned uh, very difficult to deal with, even for them, by the summer of 2008. Uh, their leader at the time, Kim Jong-il, had become Kim Jong very ill with a, a stroke and, uh, you know, we weren't getting kind of the answers from them and so, and we weren't getting the verification that we needed on the nuclear talks. But, so nonetheless, I go up to her office expecting her to ask me more questions about North Korea. And so I walked into her office and she had completely rearranged the furniture from when Condoleezza Rice was there. It's kind of weird for those of us career people, you know, you're kind of used to one person and boom, you have another person. And so I noticed she had a couple of wing chairs set up and she asked me to sit in one of them and there was the fireplace and then the wing chair where she was. So I sat down and then I noticed her deputy secretary or undersecretary and her chief of staff were also sitting there and I'm thinking, my gosh, uh, North Korea is getting an upgrade with the Obama administration. And, and then she said all these nice things to me about my adventures and, you know, I felt like sort of Frodo Baggins, you know, uh, uh, and so I sunk into the wing chair and, oh, isn't this nice? And then she said, I would like you to do one more thing. I said, oh my God, what would that be? And she said, uh, would you go to Baghdad? And uh, I had never uh, uh, served in that part of the world. I had certainly served in the Balkans, so I knew a lot about the western part of the Ottoman Empire. I just hadn't been to the eastern part of the Ottoman Empire. To understand anything in that part of the world, you need to understand what a 500-year Ottoman Empire really meant. And so, uh, um, but I thought, I told her three things. I said, I'm very honored, I know how important it is, and I'm going to have to need, I'm going to have to think about this overnight. And I did, and I just decided I didn't want to be uh, someone who'd have to tell his uh, grandchildren that yes, he had an offer to go to Baghdad, and no, he turned it down. So I came and saw her and told her uh, the next day I'd do it. So off I went, and um, arriving in, in Baghdad in, in April 2009, and then I realized what a tough situation uh, we had put ourselves into. I think to this day, uh, Americans have trouble understanding that situation, and certainly it hasn't gotten a lot better. In fact, in many respects, it's gotten worse. But I would argue that some of the issues that go on in Iraq are issues that probably um, we should have understood in the first place. There are two main sectarian identities there, Sunni and Shia. Sunni, and there, there's a, another identity called Kurds, uh, the Kurdish people up in the north. But uh, Saddam Hussein was from the minority Sunni. They had some 20% of the population. 
So Saddam Hussein, he didn't like to say he was only representing 20% of the population. He'd say he's representing, he created a kind of secular concept called Ba'athism, which um, was a kind of warmed over Arab socialism of some kind, but it really didn't make a lot of sense. What he was basically trying to do was run the country with 20% of the population. And so when we went in there in 03, what we essentially did was to take a Sunni-led but Shia-majority country, and we flipped it to becoming a Shia-led and continually Shia-majority. So this country that we had created had a lot of very unhappy Sunnis there, people who had been used to running the place for hundreds of years. And in fact, when the Turks had come in, the Ottomans had come in as Sunnis, they appointed fellow Sunnis, in this case Arab Sunnis, to run the country. So the Arab Sunnis were quite used to uh, running the place. Now the American answer to this is, oh, don't think of yourselves as Sunnis or Shia. You need to think of yourselves as like big government or small government or high taxes or low taxes. Well, that's all very beautiful, but it has nothing to do with Iraqi politics. And so when you decapitate what stood as the kind of Iraqi government, such as it was uh, under Saddam Hussein, when you decapitate something like that, lo and behold, people revert to their sectarian identities. So the Shia always voted for Shia, the Sunnis always voted for Sunni, and lo and behold, the Shia always won. So now one of the narratives you hear today, and I'll get to the situation in Syria because we saw a little of that early on, was uh, one of the narratives you hear today is that somehow the Shia elected this guy named Nuri al-Maliki, who was such a terrible person that the Sunnis were really unable to work for him, and then they eventually formed ISIS, and that's what's going on today. Well, I've spent a lot of time with Nuri al-Maliki. He's not a very nice guy. Um, He's not a lot of fun to deal with. If he ever had charisma, it cleared up a long time ago. Uh, very, very difficult sort of person. But, and he certainly, you know, if, if he had been Nelson Mandela, uh, Nelson Mandela, if Nelson Mandela could have been an Iraqi for a day, he might have reached out to the Sunni and he might have said, look Sunnis, I understand you're a small minority here, but you've been running the place for a long time. This is kind of traumatizing that you're no longer running the place, but let me try to work with you and make sure you feel good about the, the kind of new order of things. So if Maliki had been, uh, had been uh, Nelson Mandela, maybe that could have happened, but Maliki is not Nelson Mandela. And so when the Sunnis came after him, he came right after them. And so he was not the kind of guy to do what we call Sunni outreach. And moreover, as the situation in Syria began to develop, let me make very clear, Syria is not now, and frankly speaking, has never been since it all started a few years ago, a battle, a struggle between authoritarianism under Bashir al-Assad and people wanting democracy, all the, uh, the people opposing Bashar al-Assad. It has been a sectarian knife fight basically since the beginning. And what is interesting about Syria, and this speaks to some of the kind of crude line drawing done by Western colonial powers a hundred years ago, Syria is a, is a Sunni majority state, Iraq a Sunni minority, Syria is Sunni majority, and yet it's run by a 15% uh, Alawite tribe, 
under Bashir al-Assad. So when the Arab Spring happened, the Sunnis wanted to take over in Syria, and they convinced American newspapers, oh, we're not, we're not interested in being Sunnis, we're interested in being in favor of democracy. Well, most people understood, most people in the region understood it had little to do with democracy. It had everything to do with the Sunni majority wanting to take over by force the uh, Alawite minority. So part of that Sunni majority were these very Islamist, very extremist Sunnis, some of whom had been driven out of Iraq um, when the United States was successful in getting some of the Sunni tribal chieftains, successful by giving them money. Money is not only uh, uh, something you use to buy things with, it also can be a weapon of war. So we gave Sunni tribal chieftains money and they turned around and kicked these uh, these Sunni extremists out, except these Sunni extremists came back and no, and they have since, this, these tribal leaders in western Iraq have since taken started taking money from ISIS and are kind of part of the ISIS coalition. So we have a, we have a real problem there. Um, whether, you know, there are a lot of people who say, well, if only the administration had kept a few more American troops there, this never would have happened. I can tell you that it takes two to keep U.S. troops there. It takes a U.S. that says, hey, you really need troops here, and it also takes Iraqis to say, you're right, we do need to keep your troops here. None of the Iraqis were prepared to do that. The Kurds were. The Kurds are kind of a separate deal up in the north. They wanted to see our troops remain there. Maliki would say, hey, I want the troops there, but I can't convince anyone else. And if you talk to anyone else, they'd say, well, I want to keep the U.S. troops there, but I can't convince Maliki. And so before you knew it, all the Iraqis, all the Arab Iraqis, Sunni and Shia, were not prepared to see uh, U.S. troops stay there on the basis of something called immunity, on the basis that if an American soldier runs a red light or something, in our view of immunity, he should be tried under a U.S. military uh, uh, code, not under the Iraqi uh, Iraqi judiciary system. So we refuse to allow to to agree to keep U.S. troops there under the Iraqi uh, judicial system, which, um, if you think about it for about three seconds, was the right call, um, with all due respect to the Iraqi judicial system. So, um, but I'm not sure even if we had 10,000 troops there, the kind of numbers that were envisioned, we would have been able to get through this. Um, I'm not sure they would have been much of a deterrent. We had some three, from some 200,000 U.S. troops when there was a full-scale uh, insurrection in western Iraq back in 06 and 07. So I'm not sure we could have solved that. So we're kind of, we're, we are where we are. Um, I think there's a better leader in Iraq today, Haider al-Abadi. Um, he is not being very successful in bringing Sunnis over, but he is being successful in stabilizing the performance of the Iraqi army, thanks to American advisors. There's also a big effort to help the Kurdish forces in the north, and they're also stabilizing. So I think there's some reason for some optimism in Iraq. I might add that the area of Iraq where all the oil is produced in southeastern Iraq, southeastern Iraq down in um, you know, Basra area, Oil is being pumped out of there at a record record rate, and I think Iraq is kind of a, in a better place. The question is whether the Iraqi army can get ISIS out of uh, 
out of uh, western Iraq, whether the Kurds can get them out of northern Iraq, and whether there can be some kind of governance structure where the Sunnis will more or less accept their fate to live under a Shia-led government in, in Baghdad. And that's going to be difficult. But where it is going to be extremely difficult is in Syria, because the United States, uh, for better or worse, decided we would um, that our first order of business was to get rid of Bashir al-Assad. Terrible guy, get rid of him. Well, in, get, in saying we ought to get rid of him, I think we misunderstood a few things. First of all, the Obama administration was very, very um, criticized for not pulling the plug on uh, Mubarak, on Hosni Mubarak, in, in Egypt. So all this criticism, why is the government so slow to say Hosni Mubarak must go? Well, first of all, when someone's worked with you for 30 years, I don't think you should be the first to pull the plug. I think Hosni Mubarak had clearly outlived his, sh his shelf life in, uh, in Egypt, but I'm not so convinced we should have been the first to pull him out, to um, pull, pull the rug out from under him. Nonetheless, I think the Obama administration felt that it was being accused of being too slow to pull, to pull the plug on him, and therefore they're going to be too fast in pulling the plug on Bashir al-Assad. And so the consequence was that Assad, that we kind of abrogated any contacts we had with Damascus. Our ambassador in Damascus went down to Hama, which is a town in Syria, and he exhorted the Syrian opposition, i.e. the Sunni opposition, to, um, to unite and overthrow the government in Baghdad. Well, guess what? The government in Baghdad did, no longer wanted to talk to our ambassador, and for darn good reason. So we essentially... Um, now, when an American ambassador does that, people in Washington love it. They go, oh, that's, uh, that's telling them like it is. Or, you know. My view is, when you're sent out as ambassador, you got one job, basically. Keep the door open to the locals so that you can go in there and say, hey, I, got, I told you this before and I'll tell you this again. What you're doing is making you no friends in Washington and you're creating a huge problem for yourself. And they'll say, thanks for letting us know. And then maybe if you've got the kind of relationship with them, you can kind of get them to understand that what they're doing is really not appreciated elsewhere. And how do you do that? You do that because they trust you, and when you ask for an appointment with the prime minister or the president, he grants you that appointment. But when you go to a little town or, or one of the provincial towns and call for the locals to overthrow uh, the government and the capital, uh, Lo and behold, you may be a hero back in Washington. Oh, we've got an ambassador really telling them what to do. You've, you've simply written yourself out of the equation, and you might as well go back and blather away on CNN rather than do your job. And so that's the situation we have today in Syria. We have no in with the, uh, with the Assad regime, terrible that it is. We have no ability to talk to them. And moreover, I would argue, we have completely failed to articulate what Syria should look like in the future. It is not to say that we can, uh, that we're going to be able to say, do in Syria what we successfully with European partners, including Russia, did in Bosnia. In Bosnia, a year and a half before the fateful and decisive Dayton peace accords, a year and a half before that, there's a group called the Contact Group, the British, the French, the Russians, the Americans. 
And we basically came up with a pro, uh, with an idea that Bosnia shall consist of two entities. There should be a Serb entity. There should be a Muslim uh, Croat federation. There'll be a parliament in Sarajevo. There'll be two uh, provincial parliaments in these two places. There would be a rotating presidency. We laid it all out. And so when we went to Dayton, we actually just kind of implemented that. So we're implementing the contact group plan. There needs to be some kind of definition of what we're doing in Syria. And I would like to ask our Secretary of State, could you please give us a speech on what you would like Syria to be 10 years from now? You know, just tell us. I mean, do you want it to be Sunni-stan? Uh, do you want it to be ISIS-stan? What, what, what are we trying to accomplish there? And I think there has been a real failure to lead in that sense, lay out a political vision for, uh, for the future. So I think these are tough problems ahead. Obviously, the North Korean problem has not yet been solved, but I think we've uh, tried to work with the uh, Chinese on that. Uh, obviously, we, we haven't figured out what to do with Putin. That's a tough one because we do not control the escalation in, in Ukraine. I mean, we don't want to go to war with Ukraine. With due respect to Ukrainians, that's not an American interest to go to war in Ukraine. And so every time we try to kind of push, push uh, uh, Putin, he pushes back and he controls the escalation there. It's a tough situation. We can't be indifferent to it. I think it's important that we've kind of started moving NATO eastward in the sense of doing more exercises in the Baltics and the Pol with Poland, etc. But that is going to be a tough one. And I think basically we're going to have to kind of batten down the hatches with the Russian relationship because it's not going to go well for, for the next few years. So whoever um, uh, wins the presidency in, uh, in uh, November 2016, whether it's uh, Hillary Clinton or one of your speakers here, Ted Cruz, uh, um, I think uh, there's going to be a very busy agenda. And what I would hope we do is to try to think through problems and really make sure that as magnificent as our military is, the finest in the history of civilization, we should not send them to do what diplomats are supposed to do. We need to be out there in the 190 uh, countries in the world, out in these outposts, trying to deal with these problems, make them better, and if as a last resort our military needs to get involved, we need to be very um, calm in the understanding that it was truly a, uh, a last resort. So with those comments, we can go to some questions. So we have a tradition at the World Affairs Council to often give the student the first question. And so I'd like to read this question from Amy Chen from Allen High School. She's a, a senior there. Ambassador, I would like to know if you have negotiated with the North Korean government about halting the cruel treatment of the people locked inside its numerous political prisoner camps as it is recognized as a violation against human rights. Yeah. I personally have not. I was in charge of the, I was the U.S. delegation to nuclear talks, but um, I very much support the fact that uh, there has been a great deal of effort on this including a, an excellent report done by uh, the uh, former Australian um, Chief Justice, someone named Michael Kirby. And he has really, as never done before, kind of outlined all these outrages against their own people. And um, as I speak tonight, uh, there is an effort to bring his report actually either to the General Assembly or to the uh, 
the um, Security Council to have North Korea condemned for these uh, this behavior and perhaps even to uh, begin to focus on some of their leadership. I completely support this this effort. The problem that I had was, as a nuclear uh, negotiator, was I was trying to get them to um, to stop producing nuclear weapons. And uh, as much as I would have liked to raise other things like their treatment of human rights, I felt that, uh, and President Bush felt very strongly, that our first order of business was to protect the United States and to do so by uh, trying to uh, stop their nuclear program, and that was clearly our focus. In diplomacy, uh, you often, as in the rest of life, you have to make uh, hard choices uh, and you have to set priorities. And I think going after the North Korean nuclear program was a was our top priority, and appropriately so. Let's take questions from the floor, and if I could ask you to identify yourself, and we have a microphone. Question in the back, one of our members. Yes. Yep. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, if you were invited to the Oval Office today and the President were to say to you, we, we, we can hear you. Go ahead. All right. If, if the President were to say to you in the Oval Office, okay, you've been there, you've seen it, what do you suggest we do? One, two, three. <laughs> Well, uh, I would uh, say uh, anything in particular. Is this about Keystone Pipeline, or is this uh, about other things? Uh, on Syria, I feel we need to get out ahead of it with a uh, diplomatic strategy. And I said, as, as important as it is to talk about you know, whether we arm an opposition, which in my view, a so-called moderate opposition, which in my view does not exist, um, I, I, I would argue that we need to get out ahead, and I would literally tell him to have his uh, Secretary of State give a speech and lay out what the U.S. position should be on a future Syria. Should it look like, uh, should it be a Canton system? Should it with a lot of regional autonomy? You know, what should be the, um, uh, the powers between president and, and their parliament, et cetera? I'd do that. On um, Putin, I would certainly uh, advocate that he continue to be tough and with the understanding that uh, tough in terms of strengthening NATO and getting European countries to buy more military equipment. I mean, military equipment, I just have to be careful in Texas on this, it's not a jobs program. It's to protect our country. And uh, I think too, uh, too often when the Europeans our great allies, God bless them, um, decide on a military program, it's in terms of what kind of jobs they can create. And so I think we need to really be tougher on this uh, issue, which has been known as burden sharing. Um, and on, um, and on, on North Korea, I think we, we can't just leave it alone because we're afraid of being criticized by uh, the neoconservatives or something. I think we need to engage um, but I think we need to really get China to step it up and understand that China is a uh, is the country that has the most leverage with uh, with North Korea. And then finally, um, this is a complicated thought, but uh, I think to some extent I, I like thoughtfulness. But I think to some extent the president may have inadvertently given thoughtfulness a bad name. Uh, I think he needs to. Uh, if I. I mean, to answer your question, 
I don't think you should think out loud in that job. Other questions? Do we have any other questions? Yes. Thank you for coming to speak to us, Mr. Ambassador. My name is Mike Deeds, and the question I have for you is, so if you were in charge, say you're president, what do you do about ISIS, assuming you have a plan for Syria? Yeah, I think one of the big problems in ISIS, I should have mentioned this earlier, is the fact that we have a lot of Sunni Arab states. You have to understand, there is one Shia-led Arab state in the entire Arab Middle East, and that's Iraq. And so when we flipped it, when we got rid of their Sunni leadership and replaced it with a Shia leadership, we kind of created this black sheep in, in the Arab Middle East. No one else is, is like that. So I think what has been lacking, or something that we need to really work harder on, is to make some of these Arab countries like Saudi Arabia understand that how they treat Iraq, we're going to be scrutinizing very closely. And uh, I think to some extent, uh, some of these countries in the Middle East have been um, a little reticent to push harder against ISIS because they're not as bothered by ISIS as we are. And so I think, um, I mean, you always want the Europeans to do more, you always want everyone to do more, but I think it's really important to work on some of these uh, regional partners. Um, and I think the President's going to have his hands full in the next few days on the Iran nuclear issue. Because, um, you know, um, I support some kind of negotiated settlement, but uh, I think what we're going to see is a... Uh, is uh, negotiators kind of more pleased with their work than anyone else is, and I think uh, we're going to have a uh, an Iran, you know, this kind of the mullahtocracy there is not going to be happy, but uh, you know, some of our Congress is not going to be happy. But what is particularly worrisome is we're going to have countries in the Arab Middle East not happy, and what they're worried about is something different than what we're worried about. We're worried about Iran and nuclear weapons. They're worried that if we kind of make uh, peace with Iran, next thing you know, we will consider Iran as important an interlocutor as we do the Saudis. <laughs> and so they are really worried about our overall direction with Iran. And so I think we really need to step up the diplomacy in the rest of the Middle East and the rest of the Arab Middle East because we do need some kind of settlement, some, some type of... Uh, improvement on the situation in Iran. And for those who think it's all about sanctions, um, you know, we've had a lot of sanctions against Iran and they've continuing, continued to build a nuclear program without any problem doing it. So I'm not sure sanctions is the whole answer. I mean, I understand everyone likes sanctions, but I don't know, I don't know about you, but when someone tries to sanction me, my inclination is not to go, oh, I give up. That's not what I would do. <laughs> and, and I don't think anyone likes to be treated that way. So we just need to understand the limits of sanctions and the necessity for other elements, and I would include negotiation. Yes, sir, we have a question over here, and you'll get the last question. Saudi Arabia is Sunni, our supposed ally. Their arch enemy is Iran. Yeah. What does the kingdom do about the festering sword inside their kingdom called Wahhabis? Yeah. 
Well, their solution to Wahhabism has been essentially to support it and to put up with it and essentially to say, okay, here's some money, just don't do damage here, you can do it anywhere else. And uh, that's not acceptable. Um, when you said their arch enemy is Iran, I, I think uh, that's true. I mean, I think the Iranians have been, I mean, you're, you're talking to someone who had a 107-millimeter uh, uh, rocket land just a few feet away and he almost killed me in Iraq. Uh, I also had a, an IED attack on my motorcade, and both of these lovely weapons were, were made in Iran. Iran has really engaged in trying to kill Americans, so I don't have a lot of sympathy for them, and uh, moreover, I have uh, diplomatic colleagues who never, to this day, recovered from what they were, how they were treated for those 444 days. I don't have a lot of sympathy for the Iranians. But I think the Saudis need to understand that that situation is not going to be defeated through Wahhabism or through ISIS. And I know the Saudis uh, look at Iran's mischief in southern Lebanon. As you know, there's a long history, and I, I, you know, I don't like to sound like a wonk about history, but you need to go to, back to 1501, and that's you know that's only uh, uh, that's that's only 500 years, but because uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes back before that. When the when when Iran converted from Sunniism to Shiism, and brought um, Shias, Shia clerics from southern Lebanon to help in the conversion process uh, in in Iran. I mean, Iran has deep feelings about uh, Lebanon as a kind of a center of Shia. Uh, uh, hood and so when uh, they support this this hideous thing called Hezbollah, you need to understand it goes back a while. So uh, I think we just need to have a lot more active diplomacy there, and we need to avoid this idea that the enemy of your enemy is your friend or something. We need to understand that everyone's in this game for their own purposes, and uh, we better at least figure out what our purposes are. You know, I just one other thing. I mean, I'd have these. Junior officers show up in the uh, in the uh, when I was ambassador in a little country Macedonia, and I remember um, when uh, my when I was junior officer, I had uh, I was in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, and I had this intrepid, iconic ambassador named Larry Eagleburger. In fact, I spent a whole chapter of my book describing Larry Eagleburger. And as a sort of an icebreaker, he'd insist that every junior officer have a one-on-one -on -one meeting on arrival. And it was a pretty stress-inducing uh, event, so much so that I uh, duplicated the thing when uh, in my first ambassadorship and, every, and ever since. And uh, basically, I want to see whether someone coming to be a political officer in the middle of the Balkans understood his Balkan history. And if he didn't, well, let's put it this way, he learned real quick. <laughs> so um, I think we need to understand these things better than we do. Uh, last question, sir. First, uh, Mr. Ambassador, thanks for coming to McKinney. Uh, my name is Don Phillips from McKinney. Uh, would you comment on our relationship with uh, Israel and Gaza, yeah. where it should be? You know, I uh, just the other day I had a... Um, group of about 20 Arab uh, journalists, several of whom were Palestinians, and uh, they asked me that same question, and uh, um, I told them that whatever you think of Israel, um, whether they're too harsh with you, uh, it seems to me that you Palestinians need to understand that 
yes, if you want to be a victim, you can get a few people to love you because you're a victim. But uh, being loved by some people is different from being helped. And that, in turn, is, being, is different from actually achieving statehood. I told them that rather than go around as professional victims, they need to understand that uh, they need to do a much better job of making Palestine work. I think, you know, whatever one thinks of Netanyahu, and you know, he has a lot of detractors, and sometimes for good reason, I think the fundamental problem for the Israelis in dealing with the Palestinians is they don't believe the Palestinians are capable of setting up a state with a decent economy and a responsible police force, etc., etc. And um, if I were Palestinian, that's what I'd focus on, rather than getting CNN to look at the latest bombing attack that somehow you know hit a hospital or something. Um, Israel, I don't think, has played it smart sometimes. It, it pains me to see the lack of support that Israel has around the world because I think sometimes they haven't played it very well. Um, that said, looking at the Palestinians, they have to do a much better job of, of doing what they have, doing better with what they've got. I remember so well in Poland, and this is the thing about a lifetime on the, in these outposts, you, um, you know, you, you learn lessons from other places that may have nothing, nothing in common with the next place. But, you know, in Poland, rather than just complain about communism and say, oh, we're victims, you sold us out at Yalta, they actually had a Polish church that worked very hard to make sure that people got educated. They had kind of shadow ministers so that by 1989, when these communists left office, they had people like Leszek Balcerowicz and, and Jacek Kuran and, uh, and uh, Dukanovich, all these people really impressive in terms of you know, running their ministries. And so I think the Palestinians might want to spend more time on that and a little less time you know, doing funerals in front of CNN. Thank you, Ambassador. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.